This episode of Undercommon Taste is sponsored by... Fireball Forge and How Not to DM proudly present their very first Kickstarter, Too Hot, One Shot. Can you survive the spicy gauntlet and emerge victorious? If you love hot food, action, and adventure, you'll love Too Hot, One Shot. Eat spicier and spicier food in real life to give your character a better chance of success in the game. Guaranteed to create amazing videos to send to family and friends or share online. Spice up your next home game night with fun new rules and an original 5e adventure, or snag the basic rules for any other TTRPG. There are also awesome tiers with VTT maps and tokens, your name in the thank you section, and even a custom t-shirt from Gemmed Firefly. Too Hot One Shot is currently fully funded and burning towards stretch goals now. Check out the episode notes for a link or search Too Hot One Shot on Kickstarter. Common Taste. This is a podcast where we create and discuss homebrew content for tabletop RPGs. You learn a lot about someone when you share a meal together. I'm Ian Woodworth. I'm joined by my co-host James Daly. And today we are going to talk about food. Yay! (laughs) We are recording this the day after Thanksgiving. I am absolutely exhausted because I spent probably 10 hours in the kitchen across two days cooking Thanksgiving dinner and... Yeah, I'm I'm just wiped. I'm just a fat kid who loves food. <laughs> so for the few of you <laughs> listeners who are outside the United States and may not be familiar with the concept of Thanksgiving, allow me to give my very cynical explanation of what the holiday is. This is a holiday established by Abraham Lincoln during the Civil War as a method of creating a sense of unity within the Union. But it is to commemorate that one time that a bunch of indigenous Americans kept a bunch of white religious extremists from starving to death and then were summarily, you know, cultural genocide. Um, Oops. Oops. Yeah. There is a lot of whitewashing of the Thanksgiving story in our education system. There really is. But at its core, I think if you can strip all of the horribleness away and honestly, just a good chunk of the history too, the core idea of Thanksgiving is taking a day to be thankful for what you have is a good one. I mean, we do sometimes need to take stock and say, you know what, life can suck, but hey, this is going right. And that can be a really good thing to do. I appreciate the holiday for that aspect. And it's also a holiday of gluttony. And again, that's an American thing. And as I said previously, I'm a fat kid, so I fully endorse gluttony. As we eat like we have government-sponsored health care. Uh, <laughs> yeah, you know, just to... I don't want to get too terribly political about this, but I would love to, to divert attention and thematics of Thanksgiving away from the pilgrims. I would too. Because the pilgrims were actually some kind of terrible people. They really were. I mean, they landed at Plymouth Rock because they were such 
religious. They were, they were they were general religious assholes, and all of their neighbors decided that they didn't want to be their neighbors anymore, so they kicked them out. Yeah, kind of. I mean, they um, got kicked out of England, and they went and settled in uh, the Netherlands for a while, and then the Dutch got tired of them and shipped them off too. If I remember correctly, they basically just gave them a boat and said, "Here, go." Yeah, pretty much. But you know, tricky legs, and yay. And like I said, history-wise, there is a lot of baggage to unpack with the holiday. Concept-wise, being thankful for what you do have. Again philosophically, I think is a good, healthy thing to do. You probably should do it more than once a year, but it is a good time to take stock. And again, generally your family's together. And again, politics, that can get nasty too. But again, appreciating family, chosen family, what you have good, taking a day to kind of catch your breath. It can be a good holiday, depending on how you want to celebrate. So now that we've gotten all of our political baggage out of the way... (laughs) Let's talk about food in TTRPGs. Food is one of those things that generally ends up getting overlooked. But you can tell so much about a group, about a culture, about a gathering, simply by the food that is present. And that is why, you know, you have... Writers like George R. R. Martin, who go into these very lavish descriptions. Uh, Bran Jacques in the uh, Redwall books, also huge descriptions of food. There's a reason for that. We're going to have to obviously give honorable mention to Tolkien as well. I mean, he spent a lot of time describing everything, but he did not neglect food. Yes, but in the <laughs> Redwall books, you end up having meal descriptions that last two or three pages. That's, yeah. <laughs> I've not read Redwall, but I would... Be inclined to read it for that because I love describing food. And as you talk about history and culture and thematics, as you understand a people or a culture, either in history or as developed, if well-developed in books, there can be a lot conveyed by the type of food served, how it's served, when it's served. You know, the term cold shoulder was actually a actual thing where they would serve you the coldest, toughest portion of meat because you had overstayed your welcome. And it was kind of a hint that maybe it was time to move on. Yeah. So we wanted to take a little bit of time. This episode may end up turning a little bit rambly because we... We're coming off the holiday and we don't have an outline. So we're going to be talking a lot of brainstorm stuff. We will be doing here in a couple of weeks another food related episode where we're talking about the more mechanical side so that we have some time to do a proper outline and plan some stuff. But today we're just going to sort of discuss. Um, We're wanting to discuss how to incorporate food into your games, how to accentuate or express cultural differences with differences in cuisine. And at the end, we're going to revisit our little homebrewed town of Verdigree that we have revisited a couple of times in the past. And we're going to create some some food stuff. So I like this. And just so this episode's not going to be a complete wash, because I'm really excited on developing a lot of this. But even food at the table, I know a handful of people that have taken this as part of a thing. And so where their players at the table are going to be, if the DM has extra time or one of the players has extra time, they might, you know, do a round robin. They bring food to the home setting or to the game setting that they think might apply to the game session itself. So if you're going to be in the elven woods, you might bring food that you would consider 
maybe elvish culture would eat versus dwarven culture versus gnomish versus halfling versus human. But you can incorporate these ideas as we bring up maybe a culture would eat this way. Bring that to your table and say, hey, we're dealing with dwarven stuff. They're going to this. This is the type of thing this culture, this region likes to eat. So here it is at the table. Experience it while you play. This adds to that table immersion. Right. Yeah. And I like personally, I do most of my food world building based around geography because where a culture is geographically is going to have the largest demonstrable impact on what they eat. Oh, absolutely. I mean, you're not going to have a diet that is primarily seafood up at the top of a mountain. Really? Because there's not seafood there. You're going to have a completely different cuisine up there. There goes like half my ideas. Thanks. (laughs) (laughs) No, I agree. And again, culture, location, as you have these different cultures mixing, you're going to start getting these blends of food, much like we do in real life. And so all of these things are wonderful, fascinating things to explore. Yeah. So that is another thing that will be brought out. If a culture has many different elements in their cuisine, then that means that they are substantial enough to be interacting with all of these different other groups to draw in elements of their culture. You know, if you have a town in a desert and one of their delicacies is a seafood dish, that is because they have enough power to trade with the coastal town 40 miles off and have the ability to transport that seafood from that coastal town to their city in the desert. Right. And again, those trade routes, and you look at European history and how much, you know, the spice trade and how that did influence European cuisine as they traveled further out and started bringing more things from localities. So if you are going to have a more reclusive, isolated settlement, their food probably is going to be more plain. It's going to have one or two flavors that are local. But that's probably about it. You're going to have local game, local crops that could be harvested, a handful of local spices versus a bustling trade city. People are going to be bringing these things in because everyone's going to bring their favorite snack with them from wherever they come from. People are going to bring new things to trade in for those new exotic bubbles. There are going to be people there that want new things. And if they can't get it readily or easily, they're going to pay a nice pouch of coin to get it. And so as you have more influence and trade of cultures and people crossing paths, you do get and find more variety. All right. So now let's try and narrow this down and focus a little bit on what we're talking about. So whenever you're building a culture and you're wanting to use food as part of your world building, you really need to assess where geographically this culture is. So if they're in the woods, there's probably going to be a lot of game involved. There's going to be a lot of foraged goods. So things like nuts and berries and probably not a lot of agricultural items, not a lot of cultivated foods, unless they are in sort of a flux where they're starting to transition from a hunter-gatherer society in the woods into more of an agrarian society. I could see that. I could also see, particularly with some of the druidic circles, particularly like circles of the spore, you might have some cultivated mushrooms would be a really easy thing because you could grow them on trees. So things like truffles are like very fancy, expensive. These could be a delicacy. These could be one of the things that they start trading is you have various mushrooms. I would also say you probably have a lot of freshwater fish 
maybe something like crawdads. Again, things that could be harvested from streams, rivers, and lakes versus saltwater food. Yes. And you're also going to want to look at what of these food items are things that they are going to gather and eat themselves. And what of these things are they going to gather and preserve in some way for trade or for storing back for food stores for later? Because there are definitely some things that keep better than others. Right. And there are some things that you're going to have to process a bit. So, you know, part of the reason why you have certain alcohols like India Pale Ales, the whole premise behind the India Pale Ale was that it was taking so long for ships to get from England to India that before they would arrive, the beer that they had in barrels for the sailors to drink because they are out at sea and they can't drink the seawater, that beer would go bad. So they would start adding extra hops to the beer to keep things from growing in it, to keep the beer from going bad. We don't want critters in the beer. You don't want critters in the beer. So these are great things to consider. So for me, if I'm going to flesh out a wooded forest, and again, for me, I'm probably going to imagine this is most likely going to be probably elvish, human, maybe some gnomish in there, generally a mix of those cultures. But I'm going to see game, deer, venison, elk, boar, probably different kinds of poultry, small poultry, uh, game birds, pheasant, that kind of thing. Eggs, again, because again, if there are thicker trees, there are going to be more points for these nests to be found, and it would be easier to domesticate birds to harvest these eggs. Again, mushrooms would be an option. Freshwater fish. I don't think large dairy products like cheeses and milks would be as prevalent because you don't have the open land for grazing. Right. Yeah. There are certain things like goats would probably be okay in a woodland scenario because they're more of a browser than a grazer. I'm bringing my farm upbringing on a goat farm into this. (laughs) Okay. So goats would be more at home in a woodland area, but raising livestock shows a certain amount of civilization, right? If your town is relying entirely on what they can hunt and forage in the woods, you're probably talking about a fairly small settlement. Because once you achieve a certain size, it becomes untenable to rely on the wilderness to feed you. Right. You Unless have you're to... using some sort of, you know, Sylvian magic. And then again, you're getting into elves and druids and at that kind of thing where they can supplement the growth of the plant life and its production. But at that point, it would make more sense to start transitioning into agriculture. Yes. As opposed to relying on magic in conjunction with hunting gathering. I could see that. Yes. I mean, if you want to have that strong magical tie, that strong druidic magical tie, you can absolutely have a town of 2000 people subsisting on goodberry <laughs> druidic enhanced hunting and foraging. Could you imagine an entire settlement just living off of goodberries? That would be miserable. That would a great be war miserable. ration, but that would be terrible. You can do it. Nobody wants to do it. Um <laughs> I once did some math because I was really, really bored. And someone (laughs) was asking about if you were to take good berries 
and juice them and ferment them into wine, would the wine still have the good berry effect? And I did the math to figure out how many castings of good berry you would have to do in order to get enough juice to make a bottle of wine. That's you're making a lot of assumptions about the moisture content of said berry. <laughs> I was operating off of the assumption because you have to make the assumption because it's not specified anywhere. I was operating off of the assumption that a good berry was equivalent to a raspberry. Okay, that's fair. And basically it would take 3 15th level druids using every single spell slot they had to cast good berry every single day to create enough good berries to juice to make one bottle of wine. That's crazy. Now, again, we can debate whether or not they would maintain the properties of the good berry. That said, talking about things that are going to be rare or delicacies or things that are going to be terribly expensive, I could see in a wooded village Even in a large city far, far away, maybe someone's heard that this is basically going to be the elixir of eternal life, and they are looking for a bottle of Goodberry wine, and they are literally willing to pay a king's ransom for it. That actually wouldn't be a bad story hook to start a party off with. You're going here to pick up said bottle of Goodberry wine because it can convey near immortality. Whether it does or not, yes. Yes. <laughs> that is a great story hook right there. I mean, that is, what more do you need? That gets your party up. You've got a quest. You're going into the woods. Now you're dealing again with a lot of wildlife, boars, wolves, rats, things like that. Great first, second level party monsters to fight. You get there. Maybe someone has already bought the wine. Maybe someone has stolen the wine. Maybe someone else has heard that you are here to purchase said item and are going to try to swoop it from you. Maybe the wine is not for sale. Oh, yes. This also could be a thing, too. And so now is your mission to get this and preserve it by hook or crook. Bam. You have the start of something that could easily go 1 to 5, 1 to 10, 1 to 20. There's the start of your adventure right there. Yeah. Ooh, that would be the start of a good Thieves Guild campaign. And that is something I do want to do. I want to do a Dueling Thieves Guild campaign at one point. I might have the opportunity to do that later this year. I'm keeping my fingers crossed. All right. So getting back on track, (laughs) if we even have a track, (laughs) as we're saying, you know, the sort of foods that they're going to have available is going to be based primarily on where they are but also on the size of the settlement. So the larger the settlement, the more likely it is that it's going to need some sort of agriculture or aquaculture or magically enhanced foodstuffs in order to sustain a population. I mean, that's the whole reason why huge swaths of England were deforested so that they could turn it into farms to raise sheep and grain. As you do. As you do. (laughs) So, yeah, and again, this is going to round that out. So do you want to deal with more of a grassland into a cityscape next then? We can, yeah. Okay. That seems like a reasonable transition. Yeah. So, again, looking at grassland cityscape, cereals, you know, oats, wheat, barley, hops, things like this, definitely going to be very, very high on this list. Your grazing animals, cattle, you're still going to have some deer, probably goats throwing them in. They're not so much grazers. Uh, more sheep. Yeah, sheep. Yes. 
Um, but you're also going to have, if you're talking about wild animals, you're going to have things like antelope and related animals to antelope. You're going to have starting in some of your horse family members, okay. because these are the sorts of animals that you find out on a savanna. Yeah. Out on a grassland. Yeah, so you're probably going to start having your larger herbivores out right. here. Because the trees themselves are going to limit the size of what is going to be living in the woods. And you don't have that limitation out on the grassland. It is, generally speaking, very abundant food source for an herbivore. Yes. Looking again at your poultry, again, if there's any kind of with the grasslands themselves, you're going to have like pheasant and quail. If there's any kind of ponds or streams, you're going to get a lot more of your waterfowl, geese and ducks. These also can be domesticated. So now if we're putting into a larger settlement, you are going to have coops and crates for the ducks and geese as they will be domesticated. So you should have a steady supply again of eggs coming through. Chickens at this point would probably be very likely as well if they're native or brought into your area. Right. Yeah. But you can also, I mean, looking at the grasslands of Africa and Australia, you're going to have large flightless birds. So you're going to have potential for things like ostriches and emus. You know, I want to see a halfling with an ostrich egg. I I want to see an uh, for a halfling king. <laughs> what I want is proper joust, like the game. Oh, the old eighties game. Yes, halfling <laughs> knight mounted on ostriches. <laughs> that would be amazing. Yes. That's what I want from this. Okay. Awesome. But yeah, again, the grassland is definitely going to lead itself to a lot more agricultural basis. Obviously, too, since it's going to be flatter, it's going to be a lot easier to build settlements here. So your settlements almost innately are going to be larger. This is where your towns and cities are going to spring up from. And within grassland, you're going to get pretty much almost all of the races. You'll get some elves as they hit the edge of their forests. You'll get dwarves and gnomes towards the base of the mountains, towards foothills. Obviously, you're going to have a large percent of humans. Again, gnomes are probably going to be within the flatlands to hills as well. This is going to be your larger, more diverse settlements. Not just in the grasslands, but in the grasslands around bodies of water. Yes, absolutely. Specifically on rivers, especially if that river is navigable by boat. Because those are the criteria that you really need to establish a large city. You need a reliable source of water. You need space to put it. You need the resources that make it feasible to build a city here for people to live here long term. And you need a way to trade with your neighbors. If you have those four things, you have everything that you need to make a large city. Yeah, now it's time to play SimCity and you start <laughs> dropping buildings. <laughs> yeah. But right. And again, so with these, you have these things baseline, but a lot of these are going to be traded. With your agriculture, you're going to see a lot more dairy products. You're going to see milks. You're going to see cheeses. You're going to have the ability to have space to dry more meats, especially with these large herbivores, because unless you can eat them all at once, they will eventually spoil. So you're going to see jerky and pemmican and smoked meats. Again, you will have the eggs kept. You're going to have the grain. So you're going to have huge grain silos. Again, 
these are things that you can easily build a story hook into protecting the grain silos. Maybe there's a rat infestation or some sort of vermin infestation. You could have a farmer where someone's stealing all of the eggs. And so you're trying to figure out what's taking all the stuff or someone's stealing the horse and the cattle. And so now you're doing like a maverick type thing where you're preventing cattle wrestling. You can do more of an Old West type scenario here. Obviously, again, the Great Plains, Flatlands, this all ties in very, very well. Right. Yeah. So continuing on, we've gotten some woods, we've gotten some grasslands. Let's talk about some coastal areas. Okay. Because coastal settlements are as old as human civilization. Absolutely. You're going to have a large variety of food in a coastal area, depending on the climate, because you can have very fertile land just inland from the coast. That is very suitable for agriculture. You have the bounty of the sea. So you have all of the seafood and all of the waterfowl that come with that. You have all of the aquatic plant life that can also be very nutritious and can also be used to condition the soil to make it more productive. And you end up getting this whole big cycle that just allows for a lot of food production, a lot of very varied food production without as much effort as it would take in a less conducive environment. Congratulations. You have achieved ecosystem. (laughs) (laughs) Right? Yeah. (laughs) So yeah, again, with these coastal cities, and again, depending on size, whether you're just a small tribe of hunter-gatherers or you have a huge established city, these are all going to be things. And two, a lot of these foods are going to start to become specialty foods or delicacies or things that are going to carry a higher price. So again, you're going to have your catch of the day. You're going to have your deeper catches as you have deeper fishing ships going further off the sea. You're going to have a lot of shellfish from the tidal pools, things like crabs, oysters, clams, that kind of thing. You are going to have the fowl. You're going to have the eggs from the sea fowl. As Ian said, with deltas and the waters coming through as the rivers flow into the ocean, they are going to deposit a lot of minerals. So this does give a lot of good farming, maybe less so with the cereals because the winds tend to be a little harsh with them. But things like root vegetables or stalks or leafy plants are going to do very, very well in this climate. So these people are going to have a very immense, very, very diet. A lot of their food likely will be the thing they trade. Because again, if there is something they want, they've got enough rare and unique flavors that they would be able to trade for whatever else they wanted if they found a market. The one grain that I can think of that would be best suited for this area would be rice. Yes, rice would do very well, barring the salt. Yeah. Well, I mean, if you're talking about, again, going back to you want to be on a river because you want to have access to a freshwater source. Yes. So if you are like in my homebrew world, the largest city in my world is built where a major river empties into the sea. And so they have the access to the fresh water of the river. They have access to all this fertile farmland upstream along the riverbank. They have a massive seafront coastal area where they have all of this shipping and all of this fishing and all of this aquaculture. It's just an ideal location. And so you end up having a town like this where places like Amsterdam, places like New Orleans. Well, New Orleans to an extent. Okay. New Orleans, they just built it in a swamp. 
New Orleans was primarily the result of a person who had a land grant who lied about a lot of things. <laughs> hey, and, look, it's American history again. <laughs> and convinced a bunch of, if I remember correctly, convinced a bunch of French individuals that if you go to the New World and settle in this city that is going to be called New Orleans, we will provide you with jobs and your criminal record will be expunged. Ah. And then they showed up and there was nothing but, you know, some buildings in a swamp, which led to a very unsavory reputation for New Orleans for a very long time because <laughs> these were fairly unsavory types coming in with the promise of jobs and then there were no jobs for them. Yeah. Again, the history of the New World is very, very muddled, we will say. Yay! <laughs> but yeah, so if you don't have your settlement on a river, it's going to be very difficult for them to achieve any real size. Basically, if they don't have that access to fresh water, you can get a city like this, a large city, something like Geneva in Switzerland, that is on a freshwater lake. Yes. Because that does also check all of the boxes of having a freshwater source and access to land and foodstuffs to sustain a population and having a resource that people want and having a way to trade it. Now, speaking of New Orleans, we can easily pick up our next biome, swamps. Swamps, yeah. Swamps are not really conducive to people. <laughs> Generally not, but yet there are those who do choose to plant their stakes there and make their home there. Absolutely. Uh, it's not impossible. It is just difficult. That it said, is, yeah, it but, is It is not conducive <laughs> yes. to human habitation. That does not mean that humans cannot habitate. Right. This said, you are going to be eating, again, a lot more wild game. You're going to have more of that hunting gathering as there will be a lot less ability for agriculture. Again, Mushrooms of various sorts could be harvested here. A large part of your diet is likely going to be wild roots and then um, reptile and amphibians. And fish. And fish, yeah. And crustaceans. Some crustaceans, and... depending on how far inland the swamp is. Oh. Well, and there's bugs and stuff. Yeah, I mean, larger bugs you could definitely Crawdads live in the swamp. <laughs> so, uh... Okay. My experience with crawdads was generally more freshwater and mountain stream. Oh, they, I, could see I mean, that. they do also live... In freshwater streams, but they are prevalent in swamps as well. Okay. Yeah. But there are still going to be some grains, things like um, millets and other more primitive grains that you can still harvest that are native in these wet, swampy environments and certain wild rices as well. So, yeah, it's not unfeasible to have a varied diet in a swamp location. It's just there are a lot of other factors. <laughs> there are a lot better options. That said, coming back with other options, food preservation within the swamp would lead itself generally to where it is damp and muggy and primarily warm in most cases. Fermentation, pickling, absolutely, alcohols. These are going to be a lot of things here. And so while they might likely trade for a lot of food, they are going to have, again, a lot of those fermented, preserved, very unique, how do I want to phrase this, unique and and keyed to the area cuisines that might 
catch people's tongues. You know, everyone likes pickles. There's different ways to do it. Kimchi, you know, the good old fashioned dill pickle, sauerkraut, things like that. People love these and will go here. But the person from the swamp, their cuisine is probably going to be viewed as peculiar to someone from a coastal or a grassland area. And this could be a good point of divide. If your character is coming from the swamp, say, these are the foods my characters like, and maybe it's enough to slightly squick out some of the passerbys, NPCs, or maybe even party members, you know, I have no problem eating a raw fish, kind of like Schmeaglewood. Maybe I enjoy frog legs. Maybe I eat the weird crocodile thing that people think are horrified when I go and I start grilling something up, as it were. You can use where you're from in this food as culture to build your character and give your character more flavor and ideas. And when you're talking about characters from areas that are less hospitable, their food is going to reflect that. Yes. They are going to be less wasteful, which means that they're probably going to eat parts of animals that most other people wouldn't. Things like eyeballs. Think, I guess. <laughs> eyeballs, yeah. Entrails. Absolutely. I did want to talk about, as we get into large cities... There is another point where I could see these being used in a large city. The magic spell Prestidigitation will flavor your food. And there's a couple other spells that will make your food taste amazing. I could see this being used by ingenious or nefarious cooks that have a touch of magic to them, that they are picking up the cheapest, most readily, easily available cuts of meat or plant or whatever they can get, throw it together with no seasoning, and just casting a first level spell or a cantrip. because. Yeah. It's all money. <laughs> yeah. And I can definitely see that as a way to feed the masses. Yes. Right. Or this even is... if you had like a special cook and the king absolutely loves this cook. And he's just like I said, he's just a mage that knew how to season something just right for the royalty. And so now he is adored because only he can produce this particular flavor. Right. But he I mean, she, I should say they. they them. Yeah. We'll they. just use they. They, they works. <laughs> they could be singular or plural. Exactly. <laughs> I am sorry when I speak of mentally created characters, I do tend to be egocentric as in I put myself in that role. And so therefore my pronouns come out. I am trying to improve on this. So yes, they fits much better. But talking about a large city, it's hard to feed a large group of people. It really is. The more people you have, the harder it is to feed them all. And so I can absolutely see a soup kitchen in this city where they are taking the fifths, that last portion where they are having to sift the weevils out of the grain and all of that and cooking up this slop and using prestidigitation to cover that rancid flavor and smell off of the top of it that would make it unpalatable in order to just make it to where the masses have something to eat so that they don't starve. So this very much reminds me of in A Game of Thrones, the first book by George R.R. R. Martin, Arya, after she is out of the castle, spoilers if you've not seen the series or read the book from forever ago, sorry. But when she's out of the castle and she's kind of living on the streets and she's catching pigeons and taking them to the soup kitchen. And for each pigeon she got, she got like a bowl of soup and a partial loaf of bread. And that's how she was subsisting for a while was just these meager scraps. But they were taking those items and basically just throwing them in the pot and stretching it out. Well, I mean, pigeon has been a foodstuff for a long time. Long time. And in the book, it was pigeon, but I, I am sure rat and other unsavory things oh, go in there as well. Absolutely. Yeah. It's <laughs> meat is meat once it's cooked down far enough. Mrs. Lovett and the worst pies of London. <laughs> 
All right. So let's get into a couple of more fantastical sort of biomes. Okay. Specifically underground, because we do have a lot of underground cultures, especially in Dungeons and Dragons. You know, the dwarves live underground. The gnomes primarily live underground. You have all the denizens of the Underdark. Um, You have various of the monstrous races, the goblinoids and the orcs and the trolls and the ogres and all of them that live underground primarily. And so that biome would also have a very different cultural palette. Yes, very much so. Because a lot of the foods that we have been talking about recently, they rely on sunlight, whether it is a vegetable or a grain that needs sunlight to grow, or it's an animal that requires that vegetable in order to feed itself, a lot of this food requires sunlight. And so whenever you get into these sorts of cultures that are underground, you end up having to change a lot of that because they don't have sunlight to grow this stuff. No, absolutely. So going back, reading some of the older like D&D books, I know they mentioned they did have large domesticated animals they would keep underground, like special cattle and boars, which you could do. Again, mushroom and fungus colonies are going to be a huge thing. Molds, mosses, and lichen, again, would make a very suitable plant form for vegetation. And I would even say that possibly whatever they would have to bioluminesce or fluoresce maybe gives things a particular flavor or hint. One thing with dwarves I really like is throughout most of D&D, they've either had advantage against poisoning or even a plus two constitution against poisoning. So like salt, one of the most basic seasonings we have is just a crushed up rock. So maybe what if some of these other rocks that are toxic to humans and us every day, maybe they have a flavor. Maybe some of these lichens, you know, kind of gives you a certain little tingle on your tongue that, you know, might knock a human over, but dwarves find fantastic. Mushrooms. Again, talking about mushrooms, there are so many mushrooms that are poisonous. (laughs) Yes. But a dwarf... Be like, hey, it's minty. (laughs) And their bodies are just designed to eat that. Absolutely. And that could be another question, too, is if your party's coming up to a dwarven hall or a gnomish hall or some denizen of the underground, are they going to know these things that they eat that they find absolutely flavorful? Are they going to know it's potentially dangerous to the party are they going to unknowingly serve toxic mushrooms or perhaps maybe they are knowingly serving toxic mushrooms and they can eat it without ill effect to try to negatively affect the party yeah and that would be another one of those points where you're taking into account the culture in this settlement how much contact they have with the outside world absolutely right so if they are regularly trading with the town that is 10 miles south along the river that is in the woods, not only are they going to have some foodstuffs from that area, but they're also going to know that the people who are not from here have to have a certain menu. Constitution. Oh, yeah. Or we can actually accidentally kill them. Yes. That said, too, another fun property of mushrooms is sometimes they make you see some really funny colors. Maybe these are noted contraband, and so they are smuggling these into towns or cities for a huge profit. Right. It may be one of those things where it is a highly controlled substance and people, again, talking about Amsterdam, 
people go to this city to oh, legally consume it. Oh, that would be, yes, very exciting. And then you could either be trying to smuggle some out or maybe someone knowing where you're headed to sneak something into your pack without you knowing so you'll be searched by the guards on your next entry on the next leg of your journey. Again, a really solid adventure hook. Like, no, these aren't mine, wink, wink. Or maybe they're just absolutely not. And how the hell does it get in there? I never picked those up, you know? Right. Again, a great adventure hook to throw a nice curve for your party. Yeah. All right. And now the other extreme of this would be mountaintop so, settlements. Like Alpine? So, yeah. Well, okay. not not just Alpine, but like at the tops of mountains, because that, that is a fantasy trope. There's a city at the yeah. top of the mountains, right? Well, I mean, Alpine as in the geographic location of yes. Alpine. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yes. Not, not specifically in the Alps, because <laughs> <Correct. laughs> last I checked, the Alps are somewhere around the French Swiss border and not in uh, Faerun. So, yes. <laughs> so again, this is going to be a lot more difficult. A lot of the food here primarily is probably going to be brought in via trade. There will be some things that grow naturally. They're going to have to be very cold hardy. They're probably going to be shrubby as there's not going to be a lot of rainfall at this altitude. So things are going to be very tough and woody to eat. Not just shortage of rainfall, but also presence of wind. Yeah. Because once you get up into the mountains, you got wind. Oh, you got all it, kinds of wind. It's not a question of, is there wind? It is a question of how hard is the wind blowing right now? Exactly. It can go from a mild breeze to a hurricane gale in the course of about five minutes. And then it switch right back. So you're going to have foodstuffs here that are going to be, as James said, very cold hardy and also very durable. Yes. Again, this is not going to be easily acquired food. What was the word we used for the swamps? It's going to be, it's not conducive. It's also blah. I forgot the word we used. We have them. Um, <laughs> but again, this isn't going to be conducive to agriculture. The food is going to be difficult to come by. So you are going to be extremely resourceful and very, very words. I have them. Frugal? Frugal, yes. With your intake, there might possibly be i wouldn't even say there'd be root vegetables there you might be some if you could like harvest them in crevices of the rocks mountain goat might be a wild animal that you could find semi-regularly again as they tend to come up probably some leaves that you would berries you'd have to pick up off of some of the smaller plants but again they're going to be starchy woody they're not going to have a lot of moisture content in with them um it would be incredibly seasonal yes and there would be regular trips down the mountain to the quote unquote foraging grounds. Yeah. Probably I can see definitely having a lot of conifers. So a lot of your conifers, if you know which ones to avoid, you can make the cones and the needles yes. and you know, all of that stuff that is all edible. Yes. Not so much with hemlock. Don't do that with hemlock. Well, hemlock's but... not a conifer, is it? Yes, it is. Oh, Okay, I stand corrected. But like your spruces and your pines and your firs, most of those, the needles and the cones and the roots are all edible. Right. And so like pine needle tea has been a thing for a very, very long time. 
this said, the things that do tend to grow, at least through the Sierra Nevadas, when you start getting to the higher elevations, the things that do grow there tend to have a fair amount of medicinal properties to them for various things. And so again, this would be something that would be harvested wild naturally, not cultivated, and traded for. Also, if there were any kind of mountain pools, you are going to have some freshwater fish, but not a huge amount. Right. It's not going to be the same like you would have in a large lake at a lower elevation. Right. Basically, what we're trying to say is don't build a major city on top of a mountain without figuring out how the heck they're going to get fed. (laughs) Now, this said, if you were really, really brave and extremely desperate, there just might be a younger dragon in that cave. Dragon meat might taste good. Just throwing that out there. (laughs) It might. Depending on the dragon. Yeah. Good luck to your party. <laughs> right. But hungry people have done desperate things. And that could be a thing is maybe this town got desperate enough and they were known that they tackled a dragon to cover their food because it was that or cannibalism, which I mean, the Donner Party was a historical thing to have happened as well. So you could put something like that in. And again, you can use this food or the lack thereof as a point for your town's culture. Maybe they killed an atheist dragon and now there's a larger than normal population of sorcerers because quote quote dragon blood in the system. Maybe they got it through ingesting versus lineage. Could be a thing. I don't know. Yeah. And drawing from some very obscure, very rare real world examples, it would not be unreasonable to have some sort of ritualistic cannibalism involved here because when someone dies that's a lot of biomass that is a lot of biomass and so if it is not a cause of death that is an obvious disease something that could be transmissible that is something if you wanted to incorporate a taboo just to make your players a little uncomfortable that could be something you could do no that's great i love that and honestly it reminds me of dune instead of for food it was for the water yes and so if you've seen the movie or read the books that ties in so closely to the culture was that need to preserve water you could do the same thing with biomass and food and it's a literal giving of yourself back to the community it's an honor to be eaten by your community that said it could come off a little suicide cultish perhaps and so that would be something for your players or npcs to have to understand or grapple with maybe there's a lot of myth or misinformation spread about how that happens versus is it everyone does it, only select people do it, it's done once a year, they do it every weekend type of thing. You can build this whole mythos around this ritual, what it takes to prompt the ritual, how frequently it happens, how the people that do it are viewed. You could easily build a huge amount of lore with that. And it could be one of those things where it's like there would be a whole cultural development over these are the sorts of people that we do cannibalize and these are the sorts of people that we don't right maybe only the royalties are cannibalized um that was a mayan thing where the royalties had a blood sacrifice they'd have to do once a year it wasn't something everyone did it was just for people of a certain case it could be that you don't eat violent deaths because that would prevent the spirit from passing on right. you know obviously you wouldn't want to eat somebody who died of a wasting disease but somebody who you know fell off the cliff and broke their neck tough to be you we need to eat i like the fact you wouldn't eat someone from a violent death because it's no longer a gift from the community it's the community stealing it from that person 
Yes. And I think that would be a really interesting thing to play with. All right. We've been at this for a whole lot longer than I (laughs) had intended to. So let's real quick just go into our town of Verdigree and just build the cuisine culture a little bit. Okay. We have established that the town of Verdigree is in an area that is surrounded by woodlands but has access to a mine, so it has access to a large underground biome. Right. It is slightly butted up against foothills to a mountain. Yes. So it's kind of like if you have mountains on one side, there's a small valley and then the woods. We also have determined that at one point there was a fair amount of agriculture going on in this small cove, but there was an infestation or a plague of insects of some sort that destroyed all the crops. Yes. And thus created the initial dispor- dysphoria. Diaspora. Know, diaspora. I can never say that correctly. Diaspora. <laughs> I've only read it. I rarely say it. <laughs> so let's go ahead and pick apart these different elements. So we're in the woods. It is a small settlement because it is a mining town. So the people who live there are going to be the miners and the people who manage the product that the miners take out. Yes. And, and, and security. And the company. Yes. So... You're not going to have a lot of established agriculture here, but you're going to have a lot of wild game because the wilderness around the town has been uninhabited for 50, 60 years. Potentially, you're going to have a lot of wild strains of whatever domestic plant they were previously growing because... Yes, we had an insect plague that came through and destroyed the crops. That doesn't mean that they destroyed 100%. I like that. That is something helpful. So you do have, yes. So you would have wild varieties of these plants. So you'd have a wild wheat. You would have a wild barley. You would have a wild tomato, things like that. I like that. And perhaps that's what, because we had also determined that there is a group of people that are trying to reestablish agriculture in the region. And that is being fought against by the company through various methods. Yes. So I do like that kind of wild cultivation. This said, while people there and they are trying to keep people solely focused on the mine because that is where the money is, the time and ability to access those wild foods, wildlife, wild game, the wild plants are less. So again, these are going to be things that you could probably get and sell at a high sum. These are going to be delicacies. I would say a large amount of the food is probably going to be lower quality and preserved because much of it is brought in via wagon. So again, salted meat, salted pork, hardtack, very fatty items, fermented, perhaps possibly canned or bottled. Right. And we also need to look at the demographics of the people who are living here, right? So we have established that there are a lot of dwarves and gnomes. Correct. And there are also a lot of dragonborn. Yes. Because of the region where this town is. Dwarves especially are going to have that cultural significance with things that grow under the ground yes so i am definitely seeing a lot of fungi so a lot of mushrooms again lichens and mosses are also potential Mm -hmm. i can also see because we typically associate dwarves with mountain sheep right okay just throughout media in World of Warcraft, the racial mount for the dwarves is the, you know, the riding ram. 
So that connection between the bighorn mountain sheep and the dwarf that is established in media, which means that it would not be unreasonable for them to have a certain amount of sheep here. Absolutely. And therefore, Um, you are going to have some sheep's milk, cheeses, the dwarves throughout various lores, as well as the gnomes are well known for brewing. It's also a mining town and miners are known for imbibing in spirits. So I think alcohols of various sorts are going to flow very freely here. And whenever you combine cheese with mushrooms, you get blue cheeses. Yes, you do. And so I think that that is going to be a very substantial, significant thing here because blue cheeses are a very persnickety thing. They are very much an acquired taste. (laughs) (laughs) They are, and I have not acquired it. Really? But no. I love blue cheese. I grew up on hot wings and blue cheese. I I grew up <laughs> I grew up in a house where if it grows mold on it it goes to the pigs. So Fair enough. It's just not a flavor profile that I like. But so I think if your players were going to walk into Vertigree and they were going to stroll into a tavern that is largely supported by the dwarves population, I think a meal that you could find served would be a mushroom and mutton stew, probably with a blue cheese and an ale of some sort would probably be a fair and obviously maybe a crackers or a dense biscuit, like a hard tack, or like I said, a really, really hard biscuit that would stay preserved for a long time. I think that would be a fair serving on a plate. What do you think? I think I am more inclined to say wild game than mutton. Okay. Personally, I see these rams as being used as beasts of burden. So things they are used in the mines to like help haul out mine carts. Right. And a resource like that, you don't want to eat it. No, that is fair. That is Especially if you're also milking the sheep, right? Because you can milk a sheep for a very long time. You can only eat it once. Well, you can milk the sheep as much as you want. Milking the rams, I would advise against. Yeah, (laughs) right. But But no, I I get what you're saying. Yeah. And so wild game might be. And so that stew might be... A little thinner, perhaps, maybe more mushroom than than meat. Right. I can see it. I can almost taste it. I could definitely see them using things like wildfowl eggs as a thickening agent. Yes. Kind of like an egg drop soup. Yes. Okay. Definitely. But there are lots of different starchy tubers that you can find in the woods that they could also be using that, you know, they cook the starch out of them in order to use that to thicken the soups. Right. And some root vegetables, something um, like a potato or a turnip or, you know, something yeah, along turnips, parsnip. parsnips, wild carrots, things yes. of that nature that would be growing out here in the woods. Yeah. We, we need to make some vertigree stew. <laughs> we can do that. I like it. Yeah, this needs to happen. Next time we have a game in person, we can make some vertigree stew. All right. Be, I like it. It'll be great. It'll so, be great. For our gnomes, what would our gnomes be eating in general? Because again, slightly different people are going to have a bit of a different cultural influence on their food. There's obviously going to be a lot of crossing and sharing, but the gnomes are definitely bringing their own flavors to the table. They are. So dwarves are typically in the mountains. They're in rocky underground areas, whereas gnomes are typically in earthen underground areas. They're in burrows. They're in 
hobbit holes, if you will. You know, they're more renowned for their ability to excavate and build in earthworks. Yes. As opposed to mining and boring through stone. So I think you're going to end up also having a similar prevalence of mushrooms in gnomish cooking. Mm -hmm. Okay. But you're also going to have much more in the line of root vegetables. You're going to have much more in the line of small burrowing games. So things like rabbit. Rabbit. Possibly squirrel with the woods, honestly. Possibly, but that would be less likely. Okay. Let's see here. You're also going to have... I would definitely see some small-scale agriculture going along with this. So things like, say, hot peppers. Okay. Hot peppers are things that you can plant a few... Like, you can plant four pepper plants in four pots in that one sunny spot in the front of your den. And those four pepper plants will produce a whole bunch of peppers and a little bit of hot pepper goes a long way. It does. With the earthenworks and other things, I could see the, the gnomes being very suited for would be to have like cubbies of quail or pheasant or chicken. And again, so you're going to have a lot of these uh, farmed eggs. So yeah, I would definitely see that gnomish food would be more palatable to the outside world because it is kind of that transition between above ground and below ground. I gotcha. And again, it's not going to be as harsh of an environment as what the dwarves are going to be used to. So again, it's going to be more of that even. There's probably going to be more trade. So they have more influence from human communities versus dwarves that might be a little more isolated or solitary given the circumstance. So these are the things they like. But again, too, the ability to take the time to harvest food or to grow food is going to be limited. So a large part of what they have is coming in from these shipments. So again, from what's being brought in versus what they like and what they can grow. These are going to be our ingredients. So we've got things like peppers, root vegetable, eggs. We said, you know, salted meats, hardtack. How are we making a meal out of this? So for the gnomish meal, I'm seeing something kind of along the lines of like the German dish Hasenpfeffer. So that black pepper rabbit. Except we're making it with spicy hot peppers instead. I like it. And maybe they have like a faux Hasenpfeffer where they can't actually get a rabbit. So they take whatever comes from the provisions and they try to dress it up to be as close as as they can. I think in this particular case, there is enough wild game in the area that they can get a rabbit. Okay. They can get a rabbit when they need to. Okay. But also going with the underground theme... I see this as coming with a side of potato bread. Ooh, nice. And maybe having, uh, you don't really associate the gnomes with spirits so much, uh, alcohol. So I don't know what we're going to have to drink alongside this. It may just be water. They may just be a group that they do various teas. Yeah, they could be teetotalers. That would make a lot of sense. And then two, perhaps there are enough herbaceous plants nearby that you could make and steep a very pleasant tea just off the wildlife that's around. That would make a lot of sense and be very earthy and homey. I like that. Actually, you do also have a lot of bees that nest in the ground. Yeah. I oh. could definitely see like mead. Yeah. No honey wine. Yeah. Have, let them have an apiary. That would be very interesting. Yes. To do. Yes. Yeah. And that would give a very clear distinction between 
the dwarven influence, the dwarven culture, and the gnomish influence. I like that. Yeah, so the gnomes would have a lighter alcohol, a more flavorful alcohol, where the dwarves are going to have a stronger, harsher spirit generally. It's going to be less flavorful, I guess. I mean, it's going to have plenty of flavor, but it's probably going to be very strong, very sharp, very bitter where the flavors for the gnomish cuisine is going to be milder on the drink, a lot spicier with the foods. As we said, they're probably going to lean heavier into these peppers. And, you know, we have a mutual friend who has made hot pepper mead before. So I would not put that (laughs) past these gnomes either. No, absolutely not. (laughs) All right. So let's talk about the third and final major group in this town, which is the Dragonborn. This one's going to be a challenge. It is going to be a challenge. I like it. So the city-states in this region of the world, in my homebrew world, are inspired by the Italian city-states of Renaissance Italy. Okay. So there is going to be a lot of seafood for the coastal areas. There's going to be a lot of agriculture, a lot of grains for the inland areas. I see there's a lot of sheep, so a lot of mutton, a lot of sheep cheeses. In certain areas, you're going to be able to have larger livestock. So, for an example, mozzarella cheese, as traditionally made, is made with milk from water buffaloes. So, that would also be a thing that could be potentially here. Okay. But we also have to remember that where Verdigris stands now used to be part of a dragonborn city-state. Yes. So the local cuisine is whatever was here before, and that is going to greatly influence how we build going out because the wild cultivars that are out in the wilderness that you can just stumble across whenever you find one of these old homesteads that's overgrown, those are the foods that the dragonborn would have been growing. Now, with that too, I think the dragonborn, and I still think, you know, the thing, so... They're not completely predatory, but I would see them definitely more carnivorous. So they are going to favor meats and cheeses and and strict proteins more than vegetable fare. I Um, I definitely I definitely don't see them as raising grains. No. Predominantly anyway. Right. So, again, I like the idea of cheeses. I like the idea of them primarily trying to find wild game when they can, where they can. Perhaps fish if there were any ponds or pools nearby. We haven't touched on the water situation over too terribly much. But I would imagine there's some rivers or lakes there because, again, this was at one point a flourishing settlement. So there would be some source of water. So there would be some form of fishery nearby, I would imagine. But again, I would see this more grilled meats, uh, prepared meats, again, cheeses. They might wind up at the moment relying more on what the company can bring in outside via provision for their cultural cuisine than would the gnomes or the dwarves. Right. But let's take a step back because we are approaching this topic as humans. Yes. We are approaching this topic as mammals. Yes. We need to think a little more reptilian about this. Okay. Thinking about some of the dragon subtypes, especially within the chromatic dragons, black dragons like to pickle their meat before they eat it. Okay. I see that. And again, that leans real heavily into that preserved type potted meat. But I can see the things that a dragonborn would eat that would be an absolute alien thing to another humanoid. So something like insects. 
Yes, I was actually going to consider that. I can definitely see them as the sort of people who would eat different kinds of insects that the other races would say, okay, that's just weird. And as we mentioned, there was an insect plague. So maybe these are something they could domesticate, raise. It's possible that it was a domesticated insect that managed to get loose. That caused this plague in the first place. Perhaps, because we never fully addressed that. We have theories, but we've never fully rounded out or discussed the actual cause. And that is not a terrible idea. And again, throw some magic trying to make a slightly bigger, more beefy insect so you can raise these as a food source and they got out of hand. Could definitely lead to ecological collapse. I like that. Yeah, because if you want to really get scaled up on your insects, things like omkegs. Onkegs are giant insects. Yeah. An onkeg would provide a lot of biomass for eating once you get around the acid pouch. <laughs> it would. And honestly, I mean, you look at seafood, things like crabs, and then we talked about, you know, lobster and crawdads. They're just crustaceans. They're sea bugs. So a land bug wouldn't be too far different. I like this. And so some sort of large insect, and we already determined that the gnomes had apiaries for honey so i could see like a giant locust and honey kind of going with the whole biblical thing where you had insects and honey especially since you know there are grasshoppers and crickets that are specialty cuisine items right there are also certain varieties of ants that are specialty cuisine items even in our human culture yeah and certain larvae you know certain grubs and caterpillars and worms that are also considered food items right that are staples in some indigenous cultures so yes i can definitely see some sort of insect based cuisine culture with these dragonborn i also like the concept of pickled meat because it's fair to me it's slightly revolting but it makes a lot of sense and it would be a way to preserve your food and again you bring that extra bit of flavor in we have analogs in human culture like i said we have potted meats vienna sausages things like that but it's just weird enough to kind of like, and so as you start bringing cultures, maybe you could start blending these scenes together. Again, I'm probably not going to sit and dine at a Dragonborn Tavern. Just <laughs> maybe, I don't know, maybe those insects are great. I love crab legs, so they might sell me on them. Right now I'm leaning far towards the door of an inn, but no, I really like that. And I can also see that whenever it comes to transporting the food in, if they're an insect-based cuisine culture, And they also like that whole, you know, fermented pickled meat that's starting to decay, that natural tenderization that you get. Dry aging. (laughs) Yeah, I can definitely see them basically culturing a piece of meat with larva, you know, just slap it into a crate and ship it. And by the time it gets there, the larva have matured to whatever the food stuff is. And they have broken down the meat that they've been feeding on sufficiently to where that also is now a cultural foodstuff. That is absolutely vile and wonderful. And maybe this is like one of those happy accents and they found <laughs> out they love it. And so they cracked this crate open and it's just like a half of a beef or half of a boar that's just crawling with maggots and larva and they love it all. And they just like, as soon as it comes in, it's like, you know, when they used to bring in like the fresh shipments of fruit and everybody would just kind of grab for whatever they could. And these things, like if you're there, they just grab for it and snap it up as fast as they can. That is vile and perfect. And I love it. (laughs) (laughs) All right. 
Well, I feel pretty happy with what we were able to come up with. Yeah, on... no, I love it. I love that we have done this for Vertigree. Um, Vertigree is fleshing out. I'm hoping within this next year that we can do a lot more with Vertigree. I am really, really would love to in the next year actually get something down on paper and make this a real playable place. And the lower we are building for it gets me so excited whenever we discuss it. So thank you everyone for joining us tonight. Again, sorry, it was a bit rambly. (laughs) We're just brain dead. James has had exams. I've been cooking food for family. The holidays are here. We just needed to unload. So thank you for listening. If you want to get in touch with us, you can send us an email under common taste at gmail.com. We're still on Twitter for now at UCP Homebrew. I haven't bailed yet. I probably will fairly soon just because it has thoroughly fallen apart. <sighs> I have created a Mastodon account. Oh, excellent. So it's at dice.camp. There's a lot of other TTRPG creators that are on the Dice Camp server. So I've only made one post there so far, but I hope to start using that a little bit more. It's Mastodon has been a learning curve. It's not as straightforward as Twitter was. This whole thing has just happened at a very inopportune time. Absolutely. (laughs) I have also created a Tumblr account because a lot of people are going back to Tumblr. Oh, huzzah. So I haven't posted anything over there yet, but we are at Undercommon Taste on Tumblr. We are also on YouTube, Twitch, Instagram, Facebook, and TikTok at Undercommon Taste. So just search for us and you can find us. We are on Patreon, patreon.com slash undercommontaste. That's where we put all of our write-ups. We are working on developing some more patron-exclusive content. We are toying with the idea of patron-exclusive episodes. We haven't fleshed out the details on that yet, so I don't want to commit. But that is one of the things that we are definitely talking about doing. If you want to help support the show financially, please go over to Patreon and become a patron. We would very much appreciate it. And finally, we are on Discord. You can find a link to the Discord in our show notes, and we would love for you to come over and chat with us. If this is your first time listening to us, welcome. And again, we are a bit rambly. We're generally more on track. But again, thank you for finding us. If you'd like to hear more of what we have to offer, you can find us wherever you listen to your podcasts. We're on Apple, Google, Spotify, iHeartRadio. Pretty much wherever you find your podcasts, you can find us. As always, too, please give us a rating and review. This helps increase our visibility and lets us know what you want to hear more of. And one last thing, we have an itch store. I forgot about that. Huzzah! Undercommontaste.itch.io. Right now we have... Beneath the Lake, which is my liminal horror adventure, available for $3. It is also available for free for all paid Patreon subscribers. So that is another way to help support the show if you are so inclined. I am working on some more liminal horror supplement to go alongside Beneath the Lake. And I'm also working on a solo journaling RPG for the Anamnesis jam that sam lee is running we will be interviewing sam in the new year but the game is called forever home and it is about the trials and tribulations of home ownership oh so scary so very scary (laughs) yeah it's it's gonna be great if i can (laughs) once i finally get it knocked out it'll be great yes thank you everyone for listening stay safe and we will see you again in two weeks with a decidedly more structured episode. (laughs) Happy gaming. Thanks for joining us for another episode of Under Common Taste. 
Our theme song is Massacre Anne, written and performed by Mary Kroll and used with permission. You can find Mary online at marycroll.bandcamp.com or on Patreon at patreon.com slash drmarycroll. Our logo is by David Sutherland. You can find more of David's work on deviantart.com slash David Sutherland or on instagram.com slash willx underscore 73. We'll be back in two weeks, so stay safe, and we'll see you then.